Surprise, surprise! Welcome, friends! A thousand welcomes! Oh, tonight is your lucky night. You have won our fabulous tour. A week, a whole week in planet Earth. Ooh, and it looks like you're going back to 2012, when Chris Chibnall was still writing for the show. Come along, folks, all aboard, have fun. Well, Ken has spoken. Something Who is on a mission from Dodd, and if we're going to do this properly, I'll need to get my original podcast team back together. Oh, uh, hi Richard. Is this going to take long? Why? Are you busy? Well, uh, Mars is at opposition. It's close and lit up all night. It's a great opportunity to have a really good look with my telescope. Oh, oh, and, and, and wave to the Ice Warriors. Look, I'm on a mission from Dodd. I'm getting the original Something Who team back together to discuss a Chibnall story. If Mars is visible all night, you can have a look afterwards. Oh, very well. Look, look, this is me writing the script right now. Oh, hi, Paul. It's me. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was my editor chasing again. <laughs> look, I'm on a mission from Dodd to get the Something Who team back together. If you join us, you'll appear busy all night and no one can get through. It's a deal. Simon? Oh, hi, Richard. Well, they told me you were in a home for retired podcasters, but I didn't believe it. Anyway, I'm on a mission from Dodd to get the original Something Who team back together again. Are you in? Well, I don't know, Richard. I haven't been on a podcast in a very long time, and I'm rather out of practice. Precisely. If you join us now, it'll be the longest recorded gap between appearances on the same podcast. Well, that's definitely something to aim for. Okay, we've got 106 minutes of Something Who to fill. We've got a full podcast hosting subscription... Half a packet of biscuits, it's dark, and we're wearing sonic sunglasses. Hit it! Welcome to the podcast, where we take something old... A Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make Something Who. Hello, I'm Richard, and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 67, where we discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories that take place on giant spaceships. So first we're going to look at Fifth Doctor story for to Doomsday from season 19, and after that we'll examine Eleventh Doctor movie-style caper, Dinosaurs on a Spaceship from the first half of Series 7. And with me to decide whether these stories are sleek star cruisers or intergalactic rust buckets, we have replicated our original lineup, starting with writer, raconteur, and missing episodes expert Paul. Good evening. Hi, Paul. Good evening. <laughs> what a delight it is to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have yeah. you back on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long way, doesn't it? I've been away for years. I think. Uh, Certainly months. Something, I was going to say something about giant spaceships, but it's now escaped me. Have we done Terminus? No. Right. No. Nope. No. But Fort of Doomsday is a better fit. 
so as you were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, my brain. Oh, we could we could do term, next time. We can do terminus and flux for the big giant dog. Oh yes, um, giant dog. Brilliant. There's, there's <laughs> finally a big fantastic. giant dog connection. <laughs> Marvelous. And next up, and you've already heard him, is science and astronomy writer Giles. Hello, there I go buzzing in. Yeah, you don't get rid of me so easily, but it's still been a while. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, it's not easy, I guess, fitting this in amongst everything else that everyone's doing, but uh, glad you're able to make it tonight. Me too. And finally, coaxed out of retirement and returning to something who, for the first time since 2020, it's Simon. Oh, it's lovely hey. to be back. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for inviting me on, guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we've missed your your sensible approach. You know, the the voice of reason. God, we've the, missed the, that. Yeah. <laughs> you can see where we've ended up three years later. Oh. So yeah, excellent to hear what you what you have to say about these two. What me and Giles? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know. Um, among other things. Well, I call I call you three the experts. I'm a I'm an armchair fan. Oh goodness a, me! There are no ex. <laughs> yeah. So look, we we came together in the autumn of 2018 initially on our related podcast 13 cast for the start of the Chris Chibnall era, and now it's just ended. So it seemed like as good an excuse as any for us to get back together and chat about a Chibnall story as well as one from the original series. So let's go. We'll kick off with Four to Doomsday, written by Terence Studley and directed by John Black. And it's a welcome back to January 1982. Actually, we, we, it's not that long ago that some of us talked about the visitation. But this one comes earlier, both in the recording and transmission schedules. And in fact, it was the first story uh, recorded by Davison. I mean, I'm sure we've got, we've got some stories to tell about that. So... So yeah, who wants to say either, I guess, you know, how you came across it or where you were in January 82 or something along those lines? I thought, wow, I'm being coached back. And then I saw the, the stories that have been picked and I'm thinking, oh no, not for to doomsday. Because, <laughs> well, way back in the day when I was a young fan, I started off with, with John Pertwee's Doctor and Unit and lots of action. And I just hoped every series, every episode, there'd be lots of action and monsters and everything. And then they messed about with the theme music and the opening credits. And I started to think, oh, no, Tom Baker got a bit long in the tooth. Then they brought in Peter Davison, which I thought was fantastic because in our family, all creatures great and small on Sunday evenings was essential family viewing. So that seemed like perfect casting. But it got ever more un-unit-like you had... Peter Davison, who was a very young actor at the time when he was cast, and yet he had this very, very juvenile sort of crew from my memory, and I'd never seen Four to Doomsday again since it was first broadcast, so I sat down with gritted teeth, but it was actually very, very good. All the critiques, you know, you always have a Doctor Who hating relative will come in the front room when you're really enjoying it and pull the show to pieces, and that was sort of what I was expecting when I came back to it, but the spaceship interior is fantastic, although... Keen viewers will probably have seen it recycled in Earthshock and Frontios and Warriors from the Deep, I think, all those, all those platforms and bit of scaffolding. But I thought Monarch and his crew were fantastically realised. Stratford Johns is a brilliant actor, really, really mm. good. And it, it had a fan- I, I just I was gripped by the plot, and it was far, far better than I remembered. And I, I really liked it. I, I didn't realise how much Peter Dawson towered over his cast. I don't, I, I don't know whether they were trying to make him look 
you know, like an elder in charge of kids again with a, you know, harking back to William, all the way back to William Hartnell. But that's what it seemed like at times. And I sort of remembered Adric, Adric's character and Tegan from memory, Tegan being very stroppy and Adric sulking all the time. But they, they were they were very, very good. So I see Matthew Waterhouse again in an entirely different light now, perhaps much with the present series, people perhaps not having strong scripts and strong roles for them. Mm. I really enjoyed it. It was, a, it was a great plot. I liked, I liked um, the backstory about the androids. It had plenty of science in it without making a brain explode like the present series often does and having to dial up Giles to find out what the heck's going on. <laughs> um, they, had enough, they had enough science to keep you interested and, and thinking and I, I just thought it was far better. All the, all the dancing and the costumes and the different humanoids I've got to admit that bored me at the time as a kid when I first saw it. But mm. looking back at it now, it's I, I think the production values are excellent, and uh, I actually want to buy the um, Blu-ray box set now of Davison's first series and see it in mm. its full glory. So I don't know what the rest of you thought, guys. Who wants to speak uh, next? Go on, go on, Charles. It appears to have opened my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, I would have been. A callow eleven-year-old when this went out, mm-hmm. but it was just—it was really, yeah, probably my second series of being, or, yeah, maybe third series of being a fan. And I don't, uh, yeah, it's. But I'm—I'm I'm with Simon. I don't think I've. No, I, I must have watched this once since transmission because I probably would have. I pretty religiously watched things on DVD when they came out, as I was given the DVDs. Uh, sort of filled in the gaps in. in my memory so I went back and um but yeah it's never really stood out to me and um, watching it this time I thought oh yeah there's there's a lot more to this than than I remembered and I think possibly because it's I think it's it suffers by comparison with what's around it because Castrovalva has got all its wacky wacky ideas and I do like a bit of bit me kind of you know weirdness and um yeah, science, yeah, or magic dressed up as science, as was his, um, mm. but it, yeah, we all know what he was doing regardless of whether he admits <laughs> it. <laughs> and then on the other side, you've got Kinder, which obviously has grown massively in its reputation, you know, since the time it went, when it went out, when I don't remember it going down particularly well at the time. And I guess we've got some, the old unfolding text too. And then you've got like the the funner stories and the, the bit more straightforward ones with uh, Visitation and Earthshock mm. in that season as well and yeah, I guess uh, I guess Black Orchid fits into the category as well so it's always kind of been down at the bottom for me and this time I really you know, found myself engaging with it terrific performance from Stratford-Johns that really holds it together I think but yeah, but it's generally it's throwing lots of interesting ideas at you and yeah, I think so so I, I did enjoy it a lot. There were a few things that were a bit off. You can tell it's Davison's first story, I think, and he's finding his feet. He's not quite, he's not quite there. Mm. But you know, by all accounts, he didn't have much. It's not like he had much of a steer on what he was, what he should be looking for. So, sure, Paul. Well, as you've as you've both started off being nice about it, I might as well start that way as well. I don't think I'll be able to keep it up for very long. But I'll, start with, I'll start with the positives. It's, it's a, it was, I nearly said, a lot better than I was expecting. It was a bit better than I was expecting. Um, 
you know, we always traditionally do that bit where we say when we, you know, how, how many times have we seen this? Um, some, sometimes Richard's in the negative numbers for. <laughs> I, I can't honestly remember how many. I it might only be once. The thing is, you see, there was a small number of stories that I rem- definitely know. I only I watched on transmission and never again since because I missed the VHSs because mm. I've said this a thousand times. I stopped buying the videos when they switched to DVDs because I'm not an idiot. And so, you know, quite a few fell down that little gap. And I, but the thing is, I can't. Re- I thought for a long time this was one, and then I thought maybe, maybe not. The, the point to which I'm coming is that I still don't know, having watched it, because <laughs> it could have been forty years since I've seen this, or it could have been twenty. I really can't remember. I, and I think that is all I need to say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. No, it's um, there were little moments. I think the, the little moments that I liked most that stood out to me are probably the clue that I haven't seen it for a long time, because I think I'd remember. I can't remember any of them. Odd bits of dialogue. <laughs> but they, they tend to be um, little lilies floating on a pond of mediocrity for me. They're, I mean, there are, there are a few nice moments with the TARDIS crew, a few moments where the interactions came off the page and mm-hmm. <laughs> the characters seemed to make sense, but that was only really by comparison with the bulk of the story where i didn't think they did uh, this is really where that the thing people who the, the criticism people often have about the series 19 team does it really start here i think because hmm. chb knew how to write them in an interesting way but um the note terence studley seems to have got is just conflict perhaps somebody gave him that deathless phrase that there is no drama without conflict and Mostly, it does just... This is where the arguing starts, isn't it? This is where people are just... Arguing, not really from a character position, but just because they don't seem to like each other. And then mm-hmm. the actors pick up on that, and, st- and there's, there's occasional lines that are said... I was looking out for them. Occasionally, a line that could be said in a very neutral way. Matthew Waterhouse will decide to shout it at Nyssa for no particular reason, because they've all sort of worked themselves up into the idea that this is how these... His companions get on. It's a strange decision. Uh, uh, meandering. It's a strange direction to take, Adric, isn't it? He, he keeps. The Doctor here says he's not gullible, just idealistic. But this is coming immediately after Castrovalva, where he is also very gullible, and this is what gives him the reputation of being somebody who will fall in with the villains hmm. at the drop of a hat. That's a. Str- I wonder if that's a coincidence or something that. Um... Does he do that in State of Decay, or does he? Or he... Well, he's. Uh, does he have a cunning plan in that? Oh. Can't remember. Who's mm. the script editor on this? Just, I didn't look. Anthony. Um, it's Root. The, it's, it? it's the Anthony. The um, yeah. whichever. <laughs> the other Anthony. Root. Vito Root. It's the other one. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the issue being, I suppose, that he's we're not really very clear how much he actually did, Darby Anthony Root. So 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 he may or may not have been the script editor. But then, but actually, this is really early, isn't it? So so perhaps he is. It, it feels like Mr. Saywood's already in charge, but he obviously isn't. So. Um, don't... Yeah. yeah, I think I say this every every time we do a season nineteen story. I say to myself, I really must get this, look at this in order, look at the, in the recording order, and see if I can work out mm. how we ended up with <laughs> with some of these strange decisions. Mm. I think my my understanding of it is that it was Reed. Are we talking about? It's it's Root. Anthony Root. Reed Reed is, Reed is uh, season seven. No, season oh, six. Sorry. Yeah. I think he was literally yeah. there for three months, wasn't he? And they got him okay. on a yes. for comment. Yeah. He was an intern or something. Whatever they. Yeah, I, th- I think he more or less had it. He, he'd gone through most of the rewrites before, and like so, it's just handed over to Sayward, as I understood it from right. 
from the production notes pretty much there. So unless unless they would went through and did a did another rewrite and added more conflicts and stuff afterwards, but I think structurally it was all it was all there before mm. he handed it off, and because it was the first in production sequence anyway. Hmm. Yeah. So so I mean I, I I had this interesting arc with this story in that I watched it when I was fourteen, and like Simon I found it boring. And then I watched it when the D, the Blu-ray came out, which is, what, a couple of years ago? I don't know, maybe three. <laughs> uh, and I thought, oh, this is quite good, actually. I thought I remember this being really, really rather bad, and this is quite good. So when I watched it this time, I came to it with the impression that, oh, this is actually quite good. And then it wasn't quite as good as... So, you know, it's, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Whatever you thought about it last time, you think something different about it when you watch it next time. I, I mean, I, 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 I was sort of middling on it, I think, um, this time. I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that, um, that Simon said in terms of the visuals being very impressive. I mean, that, that Monoptican thing, surprisingly good for CSO. Yeah. You know, they seem to have got that quite well. I agree with also with Paul though that that the um, the characterisation is a bit gets a bit tedious after a bit and my my uh, teenage daughter wandered in and said oh this is all very sexist when uh, Adric starts telling Nissa that she's just a girl or something well he's very sexist yeah but that don't know where that comes from yeah and then again five minutes later Tegan's saying men because mm. the doctor won't um, oh no he's let her down again mm. so. It's interesting also that Nyssa is reading a maths book in English, so obviously they study English in Traken, or, or or maybe that's maybe that's part of the TARDIS translation circuits. Yeah, but they're yeah. on this, they're up the spout this week because the Doctor can't hit, understand uh, Aboriginal oh, yes. Australian. You're right. When no, you can. Points, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. uh, yeah. So, so, so m- maybe they've maybe they've flipped a switch so it translates <laughs> the text. Yes, right. <laughs> Text in real time, but but audio now it's all over the shop. <laughs> I'll say one more thing, and then I'll, I'll allow someone else to say something. I do like the way that Tegan channels Graham Taylor here because she she shouts at the Doctor, "You just cost me my job," which is <laughs> um, <laughs> the infamous uh, thing with the linesman in uh, against the Netherlands. Do I not like that? <laughs> this is the first attempt at yeah. This is the first missed attempt at getting her back. Yeah, home, mm. isn't it? It would be quite funny in joke if it wasn't played so straight. Well, I suppose it's I suppose mm. it's quite funny at the beginning of visitation, isn't it? But it's yeah, you're right. Stratford Johns is very good. I'd forgotten mm. that. I, what I was going to say was one of the other reasons I can't remember if I watched this or not is because what I have seen, what I have done is watched Peter Davison and his mates on a series of pretend sofas watching it. Right. So I feel uh. so. I've, I watched the um, the extras on the Blu-ray. Mm. So I, I knew the bare bones of the story. So maybe again, that's why the moments, the film moments actually work quite nicely. The unexpected moments and the moments of charm, as John Pertwee would say, they stood out at me because they didn't make the cut in the behind the sofa mm. uh, edition. Mm. At first, I was wondering if Stratford Jones was, if he'd taken a different approach on each recording day, because depending on where he was, on what part of the set he was, he seemed to be playing it in a completely different way. But it, it might. Mm. Then I started to realise that. His character does have some hidden levels. I wouldn't say depths. Just he's on more than one level. So that it may have been deliberate, or it may have just been very confused. The problem with these bloody behind-the-scenes documentaries, and of course, I, <laughs> you say that the floating eye, 
the Manopticon what that, um, was very good. And of course it is, but when you've watched the uh, behind-the-scenes footage of the hours it seemed to spend them lining it up and poor Davison standing there waiting to do his right. marketing and all that, you sort of mm. wait for the CSO. I'm not surprised it worked. But yes, mm. it was worth it, wasn't it? And also the the big set piece, which is saved right to the end. I'd forgotten it was so late. The big set piece with the cricket ball and the mm. Doctor floating does look terrific. It does, yes. I mean, I mean, not by today's standards, but you know, by the standards of anywhere between 1963 and 89. I mean, the mm. doing that the old-fashioned way. I've seen it done a lot worse. Mm. I've forgotten there was quite so much action and stuff involved in that. What was the Enlightenment and Persuasion? Turning mm. up there as well, and, <laughs> with, um, with their ray guns. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so it all gets quite. That was a nasty bit, it... wasn't it? With um, with Adrix having his his ray gun fight with persuasion, that didn't quite work. And then um, he got lucky chap. He got to wrestle with enlightenment, but <laughs> that looked very <laughs> uncomfortable to me. <laughs> I also, I don't know if I don't. Sorry, Paul, I don't know if anyone else. Spotted enlightenment. She looked like she was licking her lips when she was watching the half-naked Greco wrestlers. <laughs> oh, to, uh, okay. No, I didn't spot that. <laughs> to add to the, to add to the things that you'd think I'd remember if I'd seen this in the last forty years, I'd forgotten that it ends with Stratford Johns being shrunk down hmm. Um, hmm. more in the sort of comical manner of the collector at the end of Sunmakers yeah. rather than hmm. the Masters thingy. Um, I've completely forgotten that. So. I just chalk it up to the fact that I, that I haven't. Mm. I think, for me, if I was to collect, stop talking about isolated details that I can barely remember and try and focus in on something, you were nearly there, Giles. You pointed out that the stories either side of it were better thought of. In, mm. Like, for example, the ones literally either side, you've got quality science fiction ideas, haven't you? Mm. From Bidmead, who, yeah. to be fair, although his science is nonsense, it's at least... A, <laughs> it's He's trying... At least it's up to date. At least it's up to date as per 1982. Yes. This, yeah. and um, obviously what we get in Kinder from Christopher Bailey's Science and Philosophy, and something quite extraordinary all mixed up in there. But here, what we have is science fiction, one of my bugbears, there's quite a few of them, science fiction written by a non-science fiction writer. So he's come in thinking, <laughs> those people normally do one of half a dozen things. They go for the Greek myths or mm. something. They, they pick on something neighbor, or they make it a political allegory. Here, it's... He's had a go, but it just falls a bit short, I think, in comparison with some of the properly novel, imaginative mm. ideas either side of it. And he's also fallen for the other problem, what I've come to think of as a new series problem, stuffed a lot of ideas in there that don't, in my opinion, all tie up. And mm. so it, as a story, as a piece of drama, I find it lacking in pace and forward momentum. It's, it is a lot of wandering around. To the extent that there is any suspense, it's the mystery. There are lots of mysteries and we see them ticked off. But I don't personally find that to have been done very well. Once you get the first reveal, others keep following. And they don't all seem to me to connect very well. We've got the... What's the first big reveal? The fact that... Enlightenment and persuasion having been the frogs, I guess. The, well, that's the episode one cliffhanger, hmm. isn't it? That they've come oh, to... Oh, that, yeah. That's a, strange, comes life. that's a strange one. So we know... We know something's going on there. We get the hints of flesh time. That's quite a nice, quite a nice turn mm. of phrase. Is it the end of part two that what's his face, Socrates yes, um, pulls his floppy chest apart to reveal he's a yeah. robot? So we get the first re reveal that there are robots involved, mm. which and this is not a 
major criticism, but just as an aside, it's presented as the most extraordinary thing you've ever seen, robots that lifelike. Well, of course, this is mm. Doctor Who. We see them every other week, robots that lifelike. Mm. So that's a that's the sort of thing that really a script editor should have pointed out earlier on. Yes, Terence, you may think you're the first person to suggest that robots could be completely lifelike, but I'm afraid, I'm afraid you've been pipped to the post there, so is it really worth ending an episode on it's it's the exact same point uh, as in the android invasion as well isn't it uh, and and almost a similar kind of re- yeah, reveal but i don't i don't know and i don't think that's the point i took from the cliffhanger of their, their lifelike robots I, I think it's the fact that they've these people that have been on this spaceship for so long hmm. that they have been effectively recorded on chip yeah on chips yeah but i mean how exciting is that? Terrence Dudley is, lo- is looking at the o- audience that. and saying, "Can you can you imagine it? Mm. I'm suggesting that there is a, that you can fit an entire human brain onto a tiny little circuit. Isn't that extraordinary? Mm. You've never heard anything like it. Well, yes, we have. This is Doctor Who. We mm. want more extraordinary things than that. I think it looks it's a bit like reference. a person and yeah. has a person's <laughs> memory mm. inside it. Well, mm. Who cares? Well, having having humanoid protagonists always saves lots of money as well, doesn't it, on the budget? And even if if the big mystery, <laughs> well, quite. I'd, I'd forgotten that persuasion, no, enlightenment's all the money went on um, Stratford John's makeup because persuasion mm. just has a rather ropey mask. Mm. Mm. Mm, forgotten that. But I mean, even in terms of the big mystery of how can these humans still be alive after thousands of years? Well, we've seen that done better quite recently. We've seen it done better in Full Circle when. They turn out to be the evolutionary ancestors of. Mm. It's a bigger time span than we thought, and they've evolved. We've seen it in State of Decay when these aren't the. Dis- they aren't the descendants. They're the. Yeah. They're the aren't the descendants. They're the 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 un- mm. undead forms. You know, there are many more imaginative answers to that question. Just saying, well, they're mm. replacing with robots. I think. I mean, I'm, I. I realise one shouldn't judge a story by what it isn't, and especially by comparison to other things that have gone before and done it. And been a bit more imaginative, but this is Doctor Who. It's an anthology. It's, you know, it's this mm. anthology. We, so, it is your duty to come in and match what's gone before, even if you're not a regular viewer. Somebody should tell you, well, this is a bit tame. Could you can you make these ideas a bit bigger? And for my money, that kind of is what where it then starts to fall apart because they pile more and more revelations on. So it's not just the humans they picked up who they mm. turn into androids. They all are. The Urbankans are themselves. Okay. I'm slightly pleased because convince me as to why that makes the story more interesting, and then, mm. and then they want to colonise the Earth, but they don't want to live there. Do they? Are they going to create three billion android hosts for the Abankans or not? I, I was slightly sketchy on that, but whether they want to live there or not, they actually want it for its minerals. And the reason they want its minerals yes. is because he wants to travel fast in time, and that's because he wants light, and that's because he wants to go back to the beginning of the universe, and that's because mm. he thinks he's God. We suddenly get in the second half of the story, we get a superfluity of plot points and mm. motivations for what is going on and why and to me to me they don't all mesh as tightly as they could and that's so apart from the rather meandering pace when it finally picks up it, it doesn't improve because it just gets a bit complicated and i will be coming back to that because um the second story here today having said that I, this is what <laughs> i don't think is a, a new series problem you've got three big ideas and you throw them all in there and um, hope that they'll be able to link them together. The second story we're looking at today, I think, works despite being is, is unusually simple and straightforward for the new series. That's what come. 
So it's interesting then that that the Abankans have are faced with the same problem as the Cybermen, the Mondasians, I suppose. Mm. But I, but rather than replace the body bit by bit, they've just said, "Oh, I tell you what, we'll we'll create a an entirely robotic body and and find the essence of the of the person in a yes, uh, and stick it on a computer chip." Yeah, it's. Exactly. I mean, if you if you look at it as a science fiction answer to that problem, then it was done better nearly twenty years before, wasn't it? It's sort of the op- It's the opposite way around, isn't it? So you you're sort of maintaining the the physical body, and you're augmenting it with electronics. Whereas this is sort of, I guess, taking the electronics and then adding the well, n- nothing organic, but trying to take the essence of the organic and put it in there. I see. I- Maybe I'm being unkind, and maybe it's in a bad mood when I watched it, but it's just that, for my money, the, although it's ni- quite nicely done, it yeah. looks quite good, and the script is passable. But the quality of the ideas, to me, feel more like a you know, Doctor Who annual story. I mean, the main twist, there's not much more than a short story plot in this, for me, with the one big twist. And you, you know how... Or, have you ever seen fans say it feels like a 60s story? They do, don't <clears> they? Right? Because yeah. people say that about season 19 in general. We've gone back to the three, one Doctor, three companions set up. Mm-hmm. And it's like Hartnell again. But also, uh, in particular, I think people often say this story feels like some, some of the stuff in the first couple of seasons where... Well, episode one certainly feels like it's going that way until... They land, they wander about. So ends halfway through, yeah. There's a lot of wandering, a lot of discussion. Mm. <laughs> Quite a bit of educational material thrown in. I mean, those dancers, mm. although they look nice, although they're a bit of colour... It, in some sense, they remind me of nothing more than Ping Cho telling stories and Marco Polo. It's, it, it didn't seem, apart from the plot point hmm. at the end, I suppose, and the Doctor hides in the uh, Chinese dragon. That was quite nicely set up. But it does have that travelogue. Well, not travelogue, because they're not going anywhere. They're just wandering around and around. I feel like even the, even the sensor rights, which starts like this, actually goes further in its runtime hmm. than, than Fort of Doomsday for me. I guess well, I guess what I do like about it though is that they've gone to the trouble of making half a dozen different locations within the spaceship that actually look different, mm. so that so that it's not just fifteen different angles on the same set, you know, trying to make it look a lot bigger than it really is. They've pulled this pulled everything apart and reconfigured it. They've done an mm. IKEA job on it or something and created something different. So, but but it does give you the sense that they are actually genuinely in a different part of the spaceship doing something else. Nope, that was more effective than I remembered. Who was the set designer? I remember seeing him on the documentary. It wasn't Tony Burrows, was it? Was it? Who later did stories that look quite a lot like this. I think it could well be. Is this the one where they infamously, probably overused that word, where they notoriously used the actual back wall of the studio to be part of the set to give it some extra height or solidity or something? Yeah, and it was quite... Yeah, yes, and you've you've punched it by... By pointing out people say it's Hartnellish, especially the first episode, and it is. But it's, it's odd that the you think okay, you've got those humans around, and or you know apparently you know apparently humans. It's it's very odd, and I was just having to go back and check my memory didn't cheat. That basically they spend the entire first half wandering around, you know, wandering around and just admiring the technology, uh, yeah, you know, and and bickering a bit, <laughs> and then they just wander straight into the throne room, don't they? And you think well, there's a whole other there's a whole second half of the first episode that you could have where they're wandering around this alien spaceship and then 
they run into Aborigines who are apparently well, ignoring them. Yeah, and, yeah. And that would be, you know, you could get you could get a lot more intrigue out of it before you yeah. have to even get Monocon. Yep. I'm going to break screen. my other rule, but the, the, all the material is here for it to be mm. much more interesting. I think also the, the characterization is a bit bland for me because it's mostly our four leads and three aliens mm. who are rather stoic. I mean, Monarch is, is better than I remember. He's got more personality than I remember, and he's played very nicely. Mm. But, I mean, they could get a lot more out of those humans. They could be very distinctive personalities, indeed. Mm. And maybe even a bit of fun, but certainly some more emotion. But, but, mm. but of course, by the time I we... I quite met... like Bygone. It's um, old Arnold of oh. Toady from the Box of Delights, as he later was. But we'll let, we'll let Bygone be Bygone, but I think among the others, <laughs> there, yes. there's definitely room for improvement. Mm. <laughs> And as you say, if you if we met them first, then mm. we've got all the mystery before we things I'm going to suggest are not necessarily more imaginative, but they are possibly slightly more functional and efficient ways of telling this story. And the mystery that we do get is often a lot of telling, not showing. We're told things, but they're cut short, mm. so we don't get the full story. But that's not as effective as a proper mystery where you. So, yeah. There is room for, for as you say, for, you could do one where they don't realise they're on a spaceship could, or you know, wonder why they're going between different eras. You could have all that sort of fun with it. Sort of war games all of the... Yeah. Mm. I mean, I'm not trying mm. to turn it into something it isn't. But it's like the, the humans from the different eras seem like a bit of an afterthought. And because they're all pretty much personality-less, because they're all... Even before we know that they're androids, they're all working, aren't they? They're not really mostly doing anything behaving. Yes, it's a corporate yes. spaceship, isn't it? <laughs> you know, they're, they're, as you say, they're all part of a workforce. Yeah. They're not there for fun or is anything. But Quark, head of IT, or is he? Oh, I can't remember who's doing <laughs> it. But it's, you know, there's, yeah, it's there. a shame because it's almost there. And then I think the other thing that annoys me is that the com- absolute running commentary, which runs through all four episodes, we cut back to Monarch and his mates commenting on everything. From their throne room. So early on, that spoils some of the surprises before we, they need to be spoiled. Hmm. And later, it just makes him look ineffectual. And it, and it's, and it's just a strange dis- device to have committed to quite so strongly. Not entirely sure what it adds. It just it at its worst, it makes the story often seem like um, a bit more moustache twirling than it needs to be. It's a bit sort of trial of a time lord esque. So, so I'm intrigued, and, and, and you know, I think there's you've hit on an interesting theme there. But, but, but equally, I'm I'm interested against that because because you, know, you know we we pull these stories apart because we're Doctor <laughs> Who fans. But I'm interested in in Simon's initial impression of yes. actually this is a fun yarn. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I guess both things are true. That there's, there's, maybe it could be better, but at the same time, there's 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 something in there that that. You've sat down, Simon, and, and and it's you know it's been an entertaining way of passing the time. Yeah, it, it was the the production values were far better than I remembered. Again, watching it, I was the similar sort of age as you, Richard, when I saw it. I, I thought the cricket ball thing at the time was silly, mm-hmm. but now it's it's fun, and mm. it didn't look as bad as I as I remembered. And I like I I I, I think Paul said. One of you guys said about it being like an office. I, I thought persuasion reminded me of the head of HR. And <laughs> enlightenment was like marketing or, or something. 
you know, particularly with their, their suits and their, their sort of business mm. wear, don't they? I, I like their shiny green suits. While we're talking about nice production decisions, that was nice that they still mm. looked a bit froggy, even when they were mm. toffed up to the nines, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a very nice touch. So I, I didn't feel it dragged. I think you, I get the impression from you, Paul, you thought it dragged a bit and there was a bit of padding and they could have done more of it, but it kept me it kept me hooked. They, yep. they kept being an interest, one interesting development after another. And when I when I watched the very latest series, I just sit there pulling it to bits. But I never I never felt like that when I was watching Force Doomsday. I did I did as a kid when I saw it. But I think you look back now and you can actually see how well it made it was and what people were trying to do far more. Mm. Yes, I wasn't trying to explain why I hated it because I didn't. I just mm. I'm trying to explain why I think it's so for me forgettable and mm. mediocre, and that which is comes across as probably more negative than i intend it's just it's also frustrating isn't it it's frustrating when you've got so many people working their best so many things that do work and so many people mm. trying their best on it and i just think fundamentally for me it could have been a lot more gripping with a few tweaks it's a classic example also of uh, all creatures great and small comes to doctor who you know because you know, terence dudley is the producer is he of, of Orkley Screen and Small I, f- I forget but certainly you know that's where John Nathan Turner met him mm. and we've had I mean you know these things will happen dur- dur- throughout the Nathan Turner era or the first half of it and some of them will be good and bad you know we will have for every Johnny Byrne with you know a couple of interesting ideas you'll have a uh, Anthony Stephen and think yeah maybe just stick to writing about the vets <laughs> but you know, and, and I guess Terence Dudley comes somewhere in the middle. You've 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 got Black Orchid later in the season. I mean, it's very strange story, but it's it's it's, it's got its interesting moments. And we'll get King's Demons in the in the following s- season, which again, you know, people kind of seem to either love or hate. So yeah, I I, I guess I guess this is probably the first time that Ter- Terence Dudley's ever tried to write science fiction. But you know, I mean, it, for for a person who isn't a science fiction writer, it's an interesting story. <laughs> It's, it's 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 not, yeah. It's, it's not steeped in it in the way that some some of the Doctor Who's writers are. I read they tried to cast Robert Hardy as Monarch. That would have been interesting. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> uh, that could be, uh, be marvellous. Yeah. You'd have had more androids doing archery, perhaps, or something like that with Robert Hardy. <laughs> I was shocked uh, to discover that that Robert Hardy was. Sorry, I'll I'll, I'll let you have a, mo- a word in a moment, Charles, because because you've been waiting for ages. I, I was shocked that to discover that Robert Hardy was younger than me when he was playing uh, Siegfried in in All Creatures Great and Small, at least first time through. Anyway, sorry, go, go on, go on, Charles. Oh, yes. <laughs> sorry, Paul. Well, I I've been watching Robert Hardy recently in An Age of Kings, nineteen sixty, BBC Ooh. famous okay. BBC attempt to do all eight of the the uh, Shakespeare's Henriad. Yeah, what surprised me when he first popped up was how modern and uh, his acting style seemed compared right. to all these other crusty old theatrical Shakespeareans. He seemed to be like a, a new thing. Somebody had grasped mm. television by the throat. Mm. I thought that for the first episode. And then uh, eventually I started to say, even in this young prototype, mm. Robert Hardy, the seeds of the overacting, which will plague the rest of his career. <laughs> and so the end of Henry V, he was climbing up the walls. But I mean, in a in a good way. It's funny you should mention Henry V because many years ago I went to a uh, event in North Yorkshire with my parents. I think it was Castle Howard, 
and Robert Hardy was doing some sort of poetic thing at the end of this event and, and there was a firework display and everything and then he, he told us as a special treat at the end of this he was going to do his uh, Henry V uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, what had already been a fairly florid performance up to that moment just just exploded into something something quite uh, extraordinary. So so yeah, I, I uh, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it started big and it just got bigger. <laughs> anyway, Charles, go on. Uh, Take I, us to a I place feel, of sensibility. Like, sorry, I don't have a Robert Hardy story. <laughs> I don't really have a Robert Hardy contribution to make. Huh. I was only going to say, with regards to the... I don't find it gets boring, because I, I feel like it's constantly throwing ideas at you, but hmm. I think... I know I made a note, and now I'm wondering if it's one of these things that I thought oh, that was quite interesting, and now I'm thinking, oh, is it actually a strength or a weakness? But the monarch is a, to my mind, fairly rare example of of a really dissembling Doctor Who villain that he's he's never really telling the truth. He's always hmm. spi- appears to be spinning a yarn. I don't know whether that's just to my mind, you know, more than more than a lot of other villains who would either you know who would either blurt out their what? entire yeah. plan the first time they're confronted by the Doctor, or you know, or just keep it to themselves and concentrate on the moustache twirling. And to my mind, the fact that the fact that he's constantly sort of coming up with these lies or half truths about things, and then I was wondering, yeah, but is that actually an advantage when you're when you're then throwing so many different motivations and revelations and possible schemes at the wall about what what he's actually well, up to? I think it's better off this way round because what we do get is a character which is mm. nicely written in the moment, as you say, he's more he's got quite a few dimensions, but mm. and. Stratford Johns uses that to his advantage. So I'd rather have that and have a superfluity of motives. I've used that word twice tonight, sorry. Because you can ignore that. Most, mm. uh, most of these motives don't really pop up. If you cut out the stuff about believing he's God and going back to the dawn of time, I really mm. I think it's just a handful of lines. I'm not really sure it changes the story at all. Yeah. Which means it shouldn't be in there, but it also means it doesn't spoil the story. Mm. The, what was the bit that stuck out of me I wasn't expecting it when he pretends to go soft on the doctor just to win Adric over yeah yes yeah it doesn't sound like much but it's quite a reasonably sophisticated psychological maneuver for a doctor who Mm. villain don't see that every week do you Mm. and it's just one example of many but that was that the one that actually is that really obvious or is that one would I be correct in saying that took me by surprise I was only half watching (laughs) so Mm. it might have been incredibly obvious what he was doing if it wasn't that it was a different one Hmm. Yeah, no, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was surprising. Um, well, you don't quite know what he's up to. You think he's up to something, and it sort of and, justified um, the um, the otherwise slightly tedious night hmm. Adric naivety angle. Yeah, I think just coming onto a production issue because you mentioned this, and I'm not sure whether you were saying it, Paul, because you were aware of it about the different performances in different locations, <laughs> yeah. and so on. This uh, was that was that just from a position of just an observation you had from watching it or yeah just tonight with okay fair enough uh, but with foreknowledge of so apparently the way they did this you know with all those sets basically the background of it was that they you know a lot of the background elements it was a, mo- a modular set that they designed so they had two different rooms they could shoot in effectively on each shooting session. So in between, so they basically had to do had to record things in in sequence. So everything everything in the throne, you know, everything in the performance hall was done on one day. Yeah. 
everything in the greenhouse or whatever was done on another day, whatever you call that. Yeah, it's all the throne room, throne room scenes were, I think, done on the last day. Right. So I mean, from a... I tell you when I first noticed it, he, yeah. in the first episode, we see him in the throne room quite a lot and he's quite subtle. And then mm. the first time we see him outside it, he's crawling, he walks up to the TARDIS and yes. can't get in. And he's acting like it's a pantomime. So yes. that, was the, that was the starkest. And with his slightly different makeup on as well. Right, yeah. Because and then after different. that, it was, you know, nothing was quite that stark again. But, mm. Mm. but then again, I kind of assumed that's how they shoot Doctor Who in, in the 70s mm. and 80s anyway, even without mm. the, the, the reuse of sets is a bit more extreme here. But they, mm. we, we know, don't we, from yeah documentaries on the claws of access onwards that they Mm. people have to do everything that's on one set first just to be more Mm. efficient and and unfortunately sometimes when i watch these i can't get my head i can't stop thinking about that because when you get a lot of when you're cutting back to the same room throughout all Mm. four episodes it's always the same camera angles i I just can't stop myself thinking they did that they did all these Mm. one after the other and even for these short little interludes of Mm. Stratford John's watching something on the monitor and saying something, and I just think, you poor yeah. bloke, you just did that one line. You must have thought, what the hell? What's the context for this? So I can't mm. stop myself thinking that. I know that's yeah. uh, mm. Doctor Who fan viewer pro- problem because yeah. we have t- too much knowledge. And that was the, yes, that that was why the throne room came last because they had done all the high crane shots of and record, pre-recorded all of the stuff for the monitor scenes. Right, yes, oh, of course, they, they'd pre-recorded all of the monitor angles. So they played them in live to the throne right. room, or well, well, not live, mm. off pneumatic tape. I oh, wasn't clear enough. Given <clears> the <throat> things we were discussing earlier. <laughs> yeah, a couple of, of or nice things with Tegan. So, so at one point Tegan says "wicked," but this is the early '80s, so that just means evil. That took me by surprise. It's her delivery, wasn't it? Yeah, that's wicked. Yeah, she yeah. said like she's really enthusiastic, and then follows up with evil, and it. Yeah, and then later on, uh, we, I mean, we all wanted to punch Adric back in the 1980s, but she gets to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. He goes down quite easily. He does. Like a sack of potatoes. There's some strange little, tiny little moments of dialogue which seem made. There's so many little things that make me feel. It makes it feel a bit old fashioned, a bit 60s ish. At one point, somebody expl- um, tells the Doctor what the villain's, the evil plan is, and he says, yes, the devil's. Doesn't he, or the mm. devil, mm. which yeah. is very out of character for the Doctor, and just it always feels a bit Bill Strutton to me, it's like mm. somebody very old-fashioned who's probably never seen the program before. Their idea of what what it's apparently like. there was there were a load of load of cut lines of or like the, the Doctor referred to the Doctor referred referred to the the youngsters on many on several occasions right. that were cut cut or or other other things about. And yeah, I really hadn't noticed the um the height differential. Really struck me, <laughs> struck mm. me too. I thought, bloody hell, he's towering over them all. And it's that's deep. in the script, isn't it? So, yeah, I, sorry guys, I, I, I noticed that as well. I, I looked up Peter Davison's height, and he's he's only six foot, so the rest of them must be tiny. Yeah, <laughs> it's in the script, isn't it? When they when the monarch and his mates are watching them on the screen, they refer to the tall one before they know mm. who they are. Mm. So, I wonder. I mean, this was probably written before. Most of the companions have been cast, presumably, was it? Oh, Ooh. yeah. Somebody suggested it's, it's, it's written. No, written it's written known. 1980, I think. 
a tail end. So, so yeah. Oh, right. I, okay. But I suppose, but you're right. I mean, I suppose they're probably. And it could have been a reference to Tom Baker, which he then just didn't have to change because not because, because Davidson's mm. as tall as him, but because he's surrounded by midgets. I think it yeah. was. A, I think he did originally write it either for Tom Baker or while Tom Baker was Doctor. I mean, I, anyway, I don't want to overstate this, but there were a few moments I did think Davidson was a bit more eccentric than usual, and although yes. we're encouraged to think that's because his performance, his performance is different here because it's his first and he hasn't worked it out yet. Hmm. And as an aside, it always it always gets me that they make him work out, they make him film several stories where he's supposed to be the Doctor before he's mm. found his character, and then when he's finally worked out what his character is, they make him do Castrovalva where he's acting out of character. I'm sure it <laughs> yeah. makes sense to them somebody at the time, but it never has yeah. to. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, th- I think we've explored previously that, that it was a nice line from John Nathan Turner, <laughs> but it doesn't actually bear much oh, yes, uh, we examination. Did. We did go into detail, uh, and, and, and I, th- I, I think the the the, the um, they were supposed to be shooting the debut story at this point. Right. That was all to but, do with but, but Last of the Zolfa Theorems or whatever. That's right. And, no, and, that's and, not and, what it was called. <laughs> it, it was, it was Project called Sigma. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. But it was, the same, it was the same writers as that, yeah. And, yeah. and, 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 it, and it wasn't going to work. Oh, yeah. my poor adultated brain. Uh, but anyway, I think, although his performance is slightly different, did you, did you, that he is occasionally a bit eccentric in the way that the Fifth Doctor pretty much never is yeah. after this. It's just odd moments. Again, it would have been nice if I'd written some of them down. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I don't want to make things too easy for our listeners. With that thought in mind, listener, go back, watch it yourself. You'll see I'm right. You'll see I'm right. I, um, yeah, funny, you should, you know, we should bring this up because it's uh, understandable in circumstances, but this very conversation has been going on today on Galley Base because of them starting to shoot with the, um, you know, the oh. just started, started shooting this week on uh, Shooty's first season. Right. And s- some people are speculating about, oh, I wonder if they'll get them to shoot one of the later stories <laughs> first. Hmm. And then oh. discussion about which, also they did it with Matt Smith to great success yes. as well. But to which someone pointed out, no, they're actors; they're fully work- capable of working this stuff out without having to um, mm. take a run up at it <laughs> if they're going to have a, um, mm. a finding your character story. Apparently, Davison also thought that some of these lines were a bit Tom Bakerish, according mm. to, according to the uh, subtitles. Well, anyway, there you are. Oh, okay. He's a clever man, yeah. although. <laughs> Uh, and Nathan Turner had given given him the really helpful advice of just be yourself. <laughs> I know. So okay, I'm you know going. I'm going senile or senile, as I saw. Um, I always pronounce it senile because I once saw a Sydney Newman interview where he describes the character of the first Doctor as a senile old man. Right. And then, and they reused that in the Hundred Years of the BBC um, documentary the other week. Mm. I, I was delighted to see that I hadn't imagined it. Mm. Anyway, never mind that. <laughs> well, I, I am actually going to see now because after that digression, I can't remember what I was going to say before mm. it. What were we talking about? The viewing figures are going up every episode. Interestingly, uh, I, I noticed noting them down. So, so mm. like Simon, whoever the people that were watching it at the time must have uh, in, you know enjoyed it enough to, to to tune into the next episode. And of course, we're going at two a week at this point. So. Um, it's all over and done with in about ten days. Was the visitation yeah. the next story after this one? Got to be Kinder, has it? Because of Anissa uh, Fenton. Uh, Kinder, yeah. Visit, visit, visitation Which was the is, next one recorded, I think. But yes, you're right. It's just demented, isn't it? This idea that you have to have a com- uh, cliffhanger on every episode into the next one. The way she, mm. <laughs> the way mm. she collapses is 
unintentionally funny, isn't it? I yeah. thought she did. <laughs> did she go on did she go on holiday for a week or something? As no, she had the old days. She had twenty four hours something assisted sleep in the Delta, Delta Wave, wave Augmenter. <laughs> no, as, a, as, as his, as his Simon, do you not, do you not know that one, Simon? Well, she wasn't on holiday. She was. She wasn't doing a William Russell or whatever, and going off to the Azores for a break. They hadn't written. <laughs> they'd only contracted her for twenty-six episodes instead of twenty-eight, or or twenty-four instead of twenty-six. Oh, and was rather, it a contract issue? I think so. Saying? Yeah. So she, that's why oh. she's in episodes one and f- it was too short. Hmm. Oh, don't, don't tell me this is another one of those fan myths. <laughs> I'm going to have to get these Blu-ray box sets out of the cellophane, I think. And watch I can't, <laughs> if this isn't true, then I can't think what else it could be. But that, yeah. She was too short, so they had to write her in. No, I don't, yeah, yeah. Or it might yeah. just be. It might just be that she there wasn't room for an extra... The Kinder was mm. written for two companions, and there wasn't room... And Christopher Bailey maybe refused to add a third one in. I think that's less yeah. likely. Mm. But, this, one um, had, this one did have to have rewrites in order to fit in the third companion. Right. So the the whole you know, the the whole business was splitting off Nissa and Adric in the episode in the first episode from the Doctor and Tegan. It's just an you know, attempt to give them something to do. Oh. So there was definitely rewriting going on. Mm. But yeah, I, I'd always assumed it was just yeah the latter scenario that they just couldn't work out how to fit her into into Kinder or or Chris Bailey said no, not happening. So. In terms of Davison's performance evolving, we have discussed this before. That high pitched thing he does, is that something he less it does a lot at the beginning? Is is the thing one thing he latches onto? The squeaky thing the fifth doctor does. He latches onto that as his his gimmick, yeah. his eccentricity, and then it gradually It's uh, a bit of an earth shock, phases. isn't there? I'm trying to think but, of God. Oh, we, I'm sorry for making us go around the same old discussions. Does he ever do it after season nineteen? Was he Can't just does he think actually of it. Does he actually start playing it like himself to the extent of using his own voice? Well, he's he's too bored in season twenty to be doing <laughs> much acting, isn't he? Yeah, he gets, gets, gets interested in again in season twenty-one. Uh, well, okay. uh, there's, 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 there's what, what I'm just trying to think about Frontios is a bit. It's, it doesn't really go squeaky there, does he? But he, he does go more a bit more eccentric at that point. Oh, mm. absolutely. But we've we've covered that. Yeah. It's amazing that got through because, for my money, that's the first time anyone actually fulfills the potential of the Fifth Doctor, mm. and um, because it's distinctly different, really, I'm surprised Saywood didn't um, cut all that out and say, "No, you can't do that. He's not like he's not like this. We've established mm. now that he's not <laughs> like this." And I know it's better, but if you'd done this three years ago, we could have been having it every week. And it's not yeah. just putting on a pair of funny glasses. He is a bit more. Eleventh Doctor, he's mm. got that absent-minded eccentricity. Because there's more than one type. The Doctor must always be eccentric, but there's lots of different ways to be eccentric. I try to choose a different one each day of the week myself, personally. <laughs> Going on the corporate theme, you know, as well as the yeah the stuff we talked about in, in the control room, you, you've got but they sit down for a bit of of uh, of, di- of dinner. It's a bit like the catering you get for a an offsite. Event or something. It's you know, it doesn't look like it's going to sustain anyone for very long. That and and actually nobody eats it either. So 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 maybe it wasn't very practical. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a whole lot of different work settings, aren't there? That we go to one after another. It, it, mm. It's it, it's unusual in that regard that they've kind of thought through and said people need to be doing something kind of useful on this spaceship, R- rather than this sort of I don't know classic sci-fi where. 
nobody seems to have an actual job to do. They're just running around shooting at, at uh, aliens or whatever. They they've actually thought, well, now we've 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 got a plant section. We've got a, a, a you know a, 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 a cyborg section. We we've got you know we've got this. We've got that. Yeah, I mean, it seems sort of kind of semi credible from that point of view. And, and I guess I mean, who's organising all the all the different displays as well, or or, or do, do they, is that just self organised? And it's not very clear. <laughs> is that maybe that's persuasion as, as in his role as head of HR? It seems so. <laughs> I, it's, it's funny. I can't help. There's a few lines in there. Like there's the line where Monarch makes some comment about, "Oh, we've well, got to have a class system." Oh, he does, doesn't he? And, and there's there's a couple of things that like that's in there. Um, I. Yeah, I was kind of thinking: is there some some big allegory? You know, is he reaching for some some kind of allegory going on in there? But is he being? You know, if he, he should get a full Bill Stratton with his insects as a allegory for the communist mm. menace. Mm. But he can't seem yeah. to commit to anything. Because so that 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 line makes him part dictator, but then mm. he also thinks he's God, which is. But he doesn't really show any signs of messianic complex, does he? He seems Not far really, too. No. He's like, I'm like you said. He's actually much more balanced, and he's slightly cunning, but he's. Hmm. And he's not averse to a literary literary quote either. Which, considering he's been away from Earth for two and a half thousand years, he seems quite quite au fait with bit of Shakespeare and stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- wow. they could have said they could have had uh, amphibian movement by you know. The, the, the uh, person of the week. Yeah. into winter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go on for six months with this one, I mean, it, 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 we should perhaps think about you know, making any more important points we've got. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, what, 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 did, what did you want to say that you haven't had a chance to go out yet? I'm just looking at my notes, and the only thing I'm going to say that hasn't, but and this is just because with with my with my Mr. Science hat on, if Whoa. I don't point if I don't point out that the cricket ball that he should have studied moving money through the cricket ball hmm. in the opposite direction instead of yeah. waiting for it to come back and bounce off him or catch it then oh, oh is that how it yeah, works oh. we'll get letters right I'm trying to work out yes yeah although not very fast presumably because it's, a, it's yeah. a, a small bit of mass compared it's to his momentum going in opposite directions and I'm willing to give it a pass on, on those grounds that you wouldn't start moving all that fast it's five what's it five and a half ounces of cricket ball and he's yeah it depends well, on how fast a bowler he is yeah but yes, I agree. You should, you should have started to move at least mm. a bit. But on the other hand, the dates for everyone, apart from bygone, the dates when they picked up various people from Earth, <laughs> supposedly are all horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> <in a, laughs> so, so it's equally wrong on the science and the history. Right. So, cool. So two cultures are united in both being normal. I wonder what Terence Dudley's speciality is. Terence oh, I know. It's, it's Agatha Christie mysteries. He can knock them off. Perfect <laughs> Agatha Christie pastiche. Just like that. <laughs> or, uh, hang on. Point. No, hang on. He can write interior uh, grand country house, and yeah. then he's, he can get that far. Yeah. Mm. His definite strong point is what twelfth century, eleventh <laughs> century. Yeah. Twelfth century. Um, oh, <laughs> oh God. Yeah. 12th yes, you're right. Thirteenth century. We sing in praise of total war. Against the uh, Saracen, we abhor. Have we done that one yet? No. Oh no. my God. Okay. No. Good. Yeah, we've, <laughs> it's we've, we've, it's we've the got, last of the tri- trilogy. Left yeah, to we've, do. Got, we've, we've got all of that to look forward to. <laughs> As, I'm, I'm afraid, Simon, we've 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 gone and done Black Orchid in your absence, so, so you've missed out on that. 
But not to worry. I tell you what, after this rewatch, I, I'm going to add four to Doomsday to the handful of um, Fifth Doctor stories I really like. Good. I'm I've delighted. Never, yeah, I've never been... I know it's a big fan favourite, but I've never been convinced by the, the Caves of Andy Pandy. What? His lost, his lost yeah. story. I was but, showing the missus a few clips of that last night because... Yeah. Uh, oh, never mind. I'm always talking about what else I've been watching. Did anyone see um, Sherwood, the, uh, the murder mystery? Uh, I, we haven't finished it yet, so if yeah, any of you three yeah. did, ah, no, no spoilers. No. But yeah. Robert Glenister's in it. Oh, right. Yeah. I didn't realise he'd been on quite a fi- such a fixture on TV. I was thinking, oh, I wonder where he's been for 40 years. Apparently he's in Hustle. Yes. For, for yes. most of that time. Yeah. I was, I was thinking what's happened to his eyes. He had, he had the big staring eyes and everything else I've ever seen him in. Oh, yes. He's somehow managing to turn that off in, mm. uh, in Sherwood thus far. Mm. Maybe he'll, there'll be a reveal yeah. that he's actually an android. Later on, he <laughs> starts staring again. I think yeah. he just resigned himself to his brother being more famous, I think, and popular. And then he lost well, that scary thing. I did wonder if they'd gone for Philip to start with, as he's playing a copper in this one, and couldn't couldn't get him. Well, but so they seem to have rob off the sub bench. They seem to have sort of, you know, pop gone up and down, you know, because obviously he was more famous to start off with, and then he he had a bit of a renaissance, didn't he? And sink or swim as well. Don't forget. Yes. yes. Started yeah. with Davison. Mm. Yeah. Good connection. Bry. There. Is that right? You call him Bry. Anyway. Wasn't he, mm. wasn't yeah, he I think so. shooting sink or swim at the same time as this? So he's really bu- he had a really busy 1981. Or was that? Mm. Yes. Is that another fan myth? I'm just going to keep trotting out all the old. No, I think they overlapped. I'm pretty sure on something that we reviewed, which presumably. Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure they took a break in the middle of filming while Davison went off to do one of his sitcoms, <laughs> and then came, and then and then came back and recorded some more. So maybe that was after visitation mm. or somewhere near that. Hmm. <sighs> I have to check. And uh, the only other thing I'd add is just so we don't blot our copybook completely. This is the result of live research, but um, Terence Dudley did, of course, produce Doom Watch and Survivors. Yes. So. Um, they're sort of science fiction. So we can't exactly. They're sort of science fiction. But he was. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're very. He's not, he's not very good on the spaceship side of things. Issue issue based. He, he also was mm. thought he th- was trying to throw a few issues in here as well. Mm, we get a bit true. of a yeah. a climate change thing. Which yeah. They've mm. done to oh, of course, the their planet what we we're doing to Earth yeah. with the ozone mm. layer, which was very hot. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> back at that point. Yeah. So you know he was he had loads of ideas. Mm. I'll mm. give him that. Okay. Do you want to take a couple of minutes, five minutes, just to, to sort of stretch your legs, and then we'll come back and green knock tea. the other one off? I wouldn't Pardon? mind making a cuppa, yeah. That's all right. Okay. Yep, okay, back in a moment. See you shortly. Paul, you're going to ostentatiously tap the keyboard. Yep, I'm just switching to a different application so I, my tapping doesn't <laughs> make my screen go happy. Yeah, what a pro. I'm ready now. All right, hang on. I'll switch down. You can edit out this gap while we'll go off and look at the credits. <laughs> mm.